Hello and welcome to A Flat Pack History of Sweden, the podcast that takes you chronologically through Swedish history, right now exploring the political madness of the 1400s in this little corner of Northern Europe. I'm Elsa. And I'm Chris. Like Orsa said, today we're going to be looking at the years around 1440 to 1448, and in particular, the rule of one very important king, King Christopher. <laughs> I wouldn't say he's actually that important in the grand scheme of Swedish monarchs. I think you're just trying to big him up because you and him share the same name, although his name should technically be pronounced Christopher. Yeah, but we're not doing that, as we said in the, the last episode, I think. I refuse that pronunciation because I don't like it very much. But with a name like that, he's bound to be important and cool, regardless of the story. So I refuse to believe any other alternative. <laughs> but first, we need to look at how he actually gets on the throne. Because when we left off last time, he was only actually elected king of Denmark after the Danes had also gotten sick of King Eric and kicked him out just like the Swedes had done previously. Yes, and before that, we need to do our Swedish phrase of the week, which this week is smaken är som baken. Which is a bit weird because it literally translates to the taste is like the behind or the taste is like the butt, right? Yeah, but it doesn't mean that something tastes like the butt. The phrase is actually an abbreviation of a longer phrase, so the full version would be Smaken är som baken delad, which translates to the taste is like the behind divided. It means that just like the behind is divided, as in we have two butt cheeks, so can tastes and likes and dislikes be. One person can like something that another person doesn't like. So you could say, well, I love seafood, but we don't eat it much at home because Chris doesn't like it. I don't understand why it tastes amazing, but I guess the taste is like the behind, divided. And we were accusing the Danes and the Danish language of being obsessed with the butt with their curse words like butt banana in a previous episode. But it doesn't seem like Sweden is much better with phrases like this then. No, I suppose not. Maybe it's a bit childish of us to keep referring to the butt. But still, this is a phrase you'll hear quite often in Swedish when people voice a difference in taste. That smaken är som baken. The taste is like the butt. Okie doke, but moving on, because I can't really think of a nice segue from that to what we're <laughs> going to be talking about in this narrative episode. Let's probably just take a few moments to remind ourselves of where we left off last time, back in the year 1440. Exactly, and the Danish council has followed their Swedish counterpart's example and once and for all kicked Eric off the throne. He's now hiding out on Gotland, where he's gradually building up his own little pirate thiefdom, which got land always seems to become every now and then in history. The Danes then opened the big book of royal genealogy and tried to see if there was anyone left with a tenuous link to Queen Margareta and the dynasty that had occupied the thrones of all the Scandinavian countries since the previous century. And well, far out on one branch, they find Christopher of Bavaria. Yes, my namesake who the Danes elect king. 
The Swedes were meant to follow suit because the council had decided that in spite of all the trouble and all the revolts in the last decade, they were going to continue to uphold the Kalmar Union. But before the Swedes can get round to rolling the red carpet out for Chris, an armed conflict breaks out between factions of the Swedish nobility. Karl Knutsenbunde is by now so powerful that he's essentially in control of most parts of Sweden, but he's suspicious of a group of noblemen who are not yet loyal to him. In particular, the Stenson brothers and the Drotts and senior statesman Christian Nilsson Vasa. In the end, Karl Knutsenbunde, or KKB as we like to call him, emerged victorious from the conflict, which we'd covered in the last chronological episode, and old King Eric has had to return to his last remaining territory on the island of Gotland. The Danish and Swedish councils had initially agreed to elect and crown Christopher simultaneously as a symbolic act to show the strength of the Kalmar Union and underline that this was, as it had originally been intended, a personal royal union with one king. But because the Swedes are faffing about with this internal conflict and therefore aren't able to move forward as one, and at the same time the Danes are increasingly worried that Erik is going to come back and try to take the throne because he's busy trying to form alliances with Prussia and the Netherlands to attack Denmark and take control of the valuable Øresund Strait, well, they decide that they can't wait for the Swedes to get their business in order and they go ahead and elect and crown Christopher on their own. Once the Swedes have sorted out their internal differences, they're going to go ahead and elect and crown Chris too, but the Swedish council thinks that this delay might actually work to their advantage. With Chris secured on the Danish throne, he can't really back out from the Kalmar Union as such, but at the same time he's not actually on the Swedish throne yet, which means there's room for negotiating the terms and conditions for his kingship there. The conditions that are put forward, and that Christopher agrees to, are a huge victory for the Swedish council. They and the rest of the Swedish nobility basically get everything they could have wanted. Previously, the members of the council have always been elected by the king, but now the council would get to elect their own members. And not just that, a committee with six members, including the archbishop, the dots, the lawman of Upland, and three others, was formed to serve as a kind of election committee. They not only proposed who should be elected to the council, but also decide who should hold various positions in the running of the state and the military. Moreover, the king agrees to move around between the kingdoms on a sort of rotating schedule, ensuring that, unlike his predecessor, he can't spend too much time in Denmark. Further conditions that he agrees to include that the Swedish council get to name all castle and county bailiffs and governors to make sure that there's no return to the practice of putting foreigners loyal to the king in local power. And Sweden gets its own Dretzel, a sort of early forerunner to a Ministry of Finance for the whole kingdom and a, a state budget, and it's agreed that any surplus left from taxes collected in Sweden will stay in the Swedish state coffers and can't be moved to fund things like a Danish war against Holstein in other countries in the Union. This was something that even with the concessions they managed to get Eric to agree to after the Engelbrecht Rebellion, the Counts would never have been able to get a king to agree to previously. 
Finally, Queen Christopher agrees to do something about an issue that is a massive thorn in the side of the Swedish council, and that's the fact that ex-King Eric is still residing on Gotland, wreaking havoc with the Baltic Sea trade, with all his pirating, and posing a threat to their power. So Christopher promises that as king, he will get Gotland back from Eric and that it will then become a solely Swedish territory, not a joint Kalmar Union territory. This definition of territory as Swedish rather than Union territory is important to the council and they get Christopher to expand on this to also say that any new territory acquired in the east will become Swedish territory. These are some pretty big concessions and limitations to his power that Christopher agrees to. We don't know how he felt about it, as there are no preserved personal records or diaries or letters of his, we just know that he accepted it. Maybe he figured that accepting this was worth it for his stability and for getting to be king of Sweden, and that he could then work out with the council in ruling the country rather than start off opposing them. Either way, Christopher hasn't got that much to bargain with here. Apart from being young and being from the traditional rural dynasty, he hasn't got that many qualifications or powers that he can put up against the council. He hasn't got a regional power base, no personal supporters to rally behind him in Sweden. He's from a place far away in southern Germany. It could be that he realises that if he doesn't agree to what they say, then the Swedish council will simply say, fine, we'll give the job to someone else then. And his chances of becoming king of the largest territory in Europe at the time would be lost. Now that the T's and C's are agreed on, it's time for Sweden to welcome their new king. On the 16th of August 1441, King Chris, as he was not called at the time, but as our Chris has written in the script, disembarks his ship in Kalmar and takes his first steps on Swedish soil. There he's met by a large party of noblemen and important church officials, including the Bishop of Linköping, a man called Nils König, whose surname ironically means king in German, by the way. There are also a number of Norwegian noblemen present in Kalmar, which could be a sign that they will accept him as king in their country too, because a year later, in June 1442, he will become king of Norway formally as well, making him king then of all the three constituent kingdoms of the Kalmar Union. From Kalmar, he continues by boat to Stockholm, where he's greeted by even more noblemen, including the man who technically holds the most power in Sweden at this moment, KKB. In a show of friendship and willingness to accept the new king, and also showing how powerful he is himself, and that he symbolically equates himself to the king, Karl Knutzenbunda puts his arm around Chris, and the two walk arm in arm through the south gate of Stockholm and into the city, where KKB then hands over the keys to Stockholm Castle to Christopher. Remember, Sweden is technically still an elected monarchy. The king has to be officially elected by members of the nobility and the church. It's easy to forget about this, since the title is often inherited and stays within the same dynasty, but it is technically still the case. And with Christopher, the Swedes seem to be keen to do things by the book. 
So on the 13th of September, he is elected at Muraing, the same place where kings have been elected since the days of King Magnus in the 1270s. He signs a kunga forsäkran, a royal oath, in which he promises to reign according to skriven lag och gamla goda forsäkringar, which is a sort of roundabouty way to say the law as written and good old promises. Or even good old insurances. Yeah. Forsäkringar. Exactly. The next day, the royal party move on to Uppsala, where Christopher is crowned by the archbishop in the cathedral there. The coronation is followed by the first ever knighting ceremonies on Swedish territory. We've seen ceremonies where people were dubbed knights before, notably at King Eric and Queen Philippa's wedding in 1406, but that was held in Lund, which is in Sweden nowadays, but was Danish at the time. So this is the first one on Swedish territory. In total, 76 men were dubbed knights, including many Danes and Bavarians, but also a number of Swedish noblemen, including Karl Knutsson Bunda, who is of course given the position of Drotz, and Magnus Bengtsson, Nat or Dog, who is back in everybody's good graces, it seems, because if you remember, he was the one who, less than six years previously, had murdered Engelbrecht Engelbrechtson. Yeah, he's the same guy. So much for punishing Engelbrecht's murderer. Less than six years later, he's made a knight. I mean, I guess the Swedish nobility were very willing to forgive and forget when the murderer was one of their own. Even though Chris is now firmly and officially on the throne, one problem still remains. He might be wearing the crown, but KKB still has all the power, at least in Sweden. Everyone seems to agree that having a person that powerful who isn't the king will not make for a stable kingdom in the long term, and will only be a problem for the effective running of the state. KKB is actually willing to relinquish some of his extensive power in favour of the king, but only if he gets something in return. And boy does he get something in return. King Christopher agrees that as compensation for relinquishing both his local and overall power in favour of the king and council, KKB gets all of Finland and the island of Öland to live and make a living by collecting taxes from there. And the king agrees to increase KKB's role as Drotz to one of Lord High Steward, Rikshövitsman, which in modern day terms would be a sort of combined prime minister, justice and finance minister. It seems like almost instantly after agreeing to all of this, the new king regretted it. I mean, mainly because despite this supposedly being a decrease in power, KKP has just essentially been given his own country and a really fancy new job in Sweden. The fact that KKP still controls the entire part of the kingdom that's east of the Baltic Sea, Finland, and is able to finance himself by taxing that territory, makes him incredibly powerful. It's like having a mini-king within the wider kingdom. And the king isn't the only one who seems to think so. Other noblemen, most notably Christian Nilsson Vasa and the lawman of Uppland, Bengt Jönsson Oxenstierna, they think KKB has gone too far. And they complain to the king, who essentially goes, yeah, that was a bit too much. I don't know what I was thinking there. Let's revoke some of the stuff we agreed to with him. 
which is always a sign of a strong and stable government. Uh, just in an instant, a screeching U-turn. And so soon after the coronation, the king kicks KKB out from the position of Dorts and gives that role to Christian Nilsson Vasa, which also essentially renders the new fancy title, Lord High Steward, void. And before KKB can actually take possession of his new territory in Finland, the king postpones his access to the important castles he needs in order to execute any efficient power there. The king then makes KKB choose either Viboy Castle and the surrounding territory or Obu Castle. KKB chooses V-Boy, far out to the east, where he relocates and take up local power. Remember, this is right on the border with Novgorod, and an area that has historically seen a lot of fighting back and forth between the two powers. In some ways, it can be argued that the king only did what KKB himself had done before in his unscrupulous execution of power. Yes, the king double-crossed KKB, but he still allowed him to essentially rule out in the far eastern part of the Swedish territory. And there, KKB will remain for now, running his own local mini-empire from V-Boy Castle and biding his time to come back to the central stage of power in Sweden if he ever gets the chance. It's all a bit confusing here, because... Why would the king do this to begin with? Just give KKB all this stuff and then take it back immediately? Is it just he was really just taken aback by how impressive KKB was and changed his mind instantly? Or was it all a plan? Seems a bit random, really. You know what it's like? He's new in the job, you know? He thought one thing was a good thing one day and then changed his mind the next day. The sources I've read doesn't really give an explanation as to why... He first promises all of this to KKB and then takes it back. Maybe the complaints from the other noblemen had something to do with it, basically thinking he'd now gone too far in favour of one of them. Yeah, it sounds like, well, he certainly changes his mind after that. But um, yeah, whether or not it was all planned to begin with or not, it's, uh, it's hard to see. The noblemen that had been rivals of KKB, they now basically divide local power in Sweden between them and get on with life under their new king. The archbishop and the noble family Oxenstierna, headed by Bengt Jönsson Oxenstierna, are now the most dominant in Swedish political life. When Christian Nilsson Vasa dies in 1442, no one succeeds him in the role of Dots, but rather the role is merged with that of Rikshovmestare, steward of the realm, just like it had already been in Denmark. But that's not high steward of the realm, it's just steward of the realm. These titles are really annoying to translate to English. Yeah, very much so. Uh, But it was the influential Bengt Jönsson Oxenstierna who got the honour of becoming the first Rikshovmästare. But who actually was this new king of Sweden, King Chris, who uh, at the moment, until I make some changes, is the only Swedish king to have that regnal name. Uh, So that's why he doesn't have a number. He's just King Christopher. Technically, his only qualification for the job was that he was related to the person who had previously occupied the throne. That's because King Eric was his maternal uncle. 
he was the son of Eric's sister, and therefore he retained a tenuous link to the dynasty. Or well, not that tenuous, actually. He is actually directly from that dynasty, albeit from a female line, that had occupied the thrones of Sweden, Norway, and Denmark for generations. He was just 23 years old when he became king of Sweden, a country that he'd actually never visited before. However, he had been to Denmark once, uh, along with his mother in 1434, when he was one of the observers of the peace agreement in Vodring's Boy, which ended the war between Denmark and Holstein over Schleswig. As we said, Christopher's mother was Eric's sister, Katarina, so he's taken the throne from his uncle. His mother had married into one of the foremost dynasties of the Holy Roman Empire. Christopher's dad, Johann of Fals, was an influential figure on the political scene of continental Europe and enjoyed a good relationship to the Emperor Sigismund. In fact, Christopher himself was a soldier in Sigismund's army in the 1430s, and after Sigismund died in 1437, Christopher continued to serve the army of the new emperor. In that army, he fought in Poland as well as during the Hussite rebellion in the modern-day Czech Republic. It's probably fair to say that in spite of his young age, Christopher knew a thing or two about politics and warfare based on his upbringing and time in the Imperial Army, even if he didn't know too much about Sweden. He was actually at a big political meeting in Nuremberg in 1438 when he received the initial offer from Denmark to come to Scandinavia and be king there. But you know what we haven't done in a while? I mean, we as in Sweden. <laughs> uh, no, what do, you, what do you mean? For a war against Novgorod. <laughs> well, that's actually very true. It's been ages since the Swedes indulged in one of its favourite historical hobbies, fighting wars with Novgorod. And uh, this would obviously develop later on to become uh, wars against its successor state, Russia. It's now as good a time as any, really, because the peace that had been enjoyed with their neighbour in the East is unstable at best, and the Teutonic Order, who had been a strong presence on the eastern shore of the Baltic Sea for decades now, is growing increasingly weaker. We covered the start of this collapse in the first ever Tangentine episode with the Battle of Grunwald in 1410, and after that crushing defeat, they've been in decline ever since. So this is a perfect time for Sweden to engage in a more active foreign policy in the east and try to expand territories southeastwards from the current border at Viboy. And of course, who's at V-Boy if not KKB, who never says no to a fight, especially not if he stands to gain something personally from it. By 1444, Sweden is engaging in all-out war against Novgorod after the Novgorodian forces had attacked the Teutonic Order's possessions in Estonia. Sensing an opportunity there, KKB struck. In the winter of 1445, Swedish forces carry out attacks around Narva, in East Karelia, and along the river Dvina, to wear the Novgorodians down by keeping them engaged in a two-front war, King Christopher also lends support to the master of the Livonian Order, a subsection of the Teutonic Order, in their fight against Novgorod. Classic your enemy's enemy is my friend uh, kind of tactics there. 
As a thank you for that, Christopher gets several estates in the territory between Reval and Nava in modern-day Estonia. Around the new year, 1447, after lengthy negotiations, Christopher agrees to a joint attack on Novgorod with the Livonian order master, and preparations for this take place throughout 1447. But the attack will never take place because, well, something happens, but I can't say what just yet. No, because we need to rewind and look at another conflict that keeps Christopher busy these couple of years, and that is his mission to once and for all sort out the situation with his uncle, ex-king Eric. Like we said, Eric is holding out at Viesboy Castle on Gotland, uh, slightly different from V-Boy, as we've mentioned last time, and he's doing what he can to stir up trouble and stick to his claim to the crown of the Kalmar Union. In practice, what he does makes little difference to the grand scheme of things, and he's really nothing more than a glorified pirate at this point. But the fact that he does keep trying to get foreign powers, like even the Dutch, to side with him, and he's disrupting trade on the Baltic Sea, makes him a genuine concern to King Christopher and the Swedish Council. The Dutch actually did send a fleet to the Baltic Sea at one point, but they end up not really doing anything, since Christopher is firmly in control of all the castles and forts that are protecting the Swedish east coast, so they don't really have an opportunity and they don't get around to helping Eric. But Eric isn't just disrupting trade, he's actually posing a real threat to Swedes who sail on the Baltic Sea, not just traders. A good example of this is when he kidnaps Bull Knudsen, a grandson of the incredibly rich nobleman Bull Jonsson Greep, who uh, we talked about in episode 62, and he did this to try and extort money from this family. This outrages the Swedish council, who want this impudent former king really out of the picture, and so they start to pressure Christopher to do something about this. To cut Eric off from any potential foreign allies, Christopher and the councils of the Kalmar Union reach agreements with these potential allies, which include giving a few Hansa towns free passage through the Öresund Straits, meaning they didn't have to pay the sound due fees, and giving the Dutch some new trade rights in Denmark. So they buy them off, basically. Christopher is reluctant to engage in direct combat with his uncle, who after all controls a substantial pirate fleet at this point. Instead, he tries to convince Eric to sit down and negotiate, but the ex-king isn't interested, like we've seen pretty much in his entire reign of the Kalmar Union, negotiations were something that interested him. And so in the end, Christopher has to act. In the early summer of 1446, a Swedish fleet consisting of around 2,000 soldiers attacked Gotland. They capture the island itself quite easily, but don't manage to get hold of Visby or Visboy. In the end, though, that doesn't really matter. The idea doesn't seem to have been to try and capture the island by force, but rather to serve as a show of force to get Eric onto the negotiating table, which succeeds. Chris arrives on the island soon after, and the two meet, supposedly on a meadow by the village of Vestergaard, to hold talks. They agree on an 18-month truce, and that they will then continue negotiations whilst this truce is ongoing, after which Chris returns to Sweden. He actually almost drowns when his ship sinks just off the island of Ida on the Swedish east coast, but he manages to get ashore, and in the end, no damage was done, but it was a, a close call there. 
However, there's actually no need for continued negotiations with Eric, because luckily for Christopher and the Kalmar Union, the situation will resolve itself entirely without their involvement. And that's because in December 1446, Eric's other nephew, on his father's side, the Duke Bugislav down in Pomerania, the same person that Eric had wanted to make his heir in the Kalmar Union, well, he dies, and consequently the position of Duke and ruler of Pomerania is vacant. And luckily for everyone, Eric is the person in line to take over. So that's pretty great. You know, there couldn't be a better way to get rid of Eric than this. And this is an offer that in standing matches what he wants to be a ruler somewhere and uh, also requires little to no effort from the king of the Kalmar Union or the Kalmar Union councils. But Eric doesn't accept this right away. He's uh, taking some time to think this over because being a pirate king is pretty cool too. Either way, for now, there's a good possibility, at least, that they'll be able to get rid of Eric once and for all. So the king and the Swedish council just leave him alone for a moment and just let him to stew over and, and think about it. So what else can they get on with whilst all this is going on in the background? Well, in 1445, Chris marries the 15-year-old Dorothea of Brandenburg, a daughter of a local count down in Germany. In a sense, Dorothea is actually the girl next door, because her father's territory actually borders Christopher's family's territory down in Germany. And what else happens in these couple of years? Sweden still hasn't got any institutions of higher education yet, no universities or colleges, but a church meeting in Söderköping in 1441 plans for such higher education institutions are at least discussed. Also in this time, in 1446, Jävla becomes the first town in Norland, so the northern region that makes up pretty much half of modern-day Sweden, but is still somewhat untouched by state control in the 1440s, and this is the time when Jävla gets town privileges, becoming the first town in the north to get this. But otherwise, uh, what else Christopher gets known for is his legal reform. And as one of our all-time favourite podcasts, Rex Factor, likes to joke about, there is nothing more boring than legal reform. Yeah, it's not necessarily the most exciting, uh, especially in this case, because the new lands lag, the country law that's instigated in 1442, is lastly just copied and based off of the previous lands lag, King Magnus Eriksson's lands lag. That was the famous original national law that we talked about quite a bit in Magnus's episode when, uh, yeah, he essentially created this first national law, federal law for Sweden. And even though this new law, Christopher's Law, or rather new set of laws, gets the name Christopher's Landslug, the king likely had very little to do with creating them. Yeah, I guess it's a bit like the Elizabeth line on the London underground system. I mean, Queen Elizabeth didn't actually build the line or had anything to do with it, really. But since it was done during her reign it got to be named after her. It's the same with this set of laws. And Victoria Station and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. yeah. People like naming stuff after rulers. What the new landslog does is to enshrine in law a bunch of conditions that had been placed on the rule of the king, which is an attempt to make the limitations of the rule of the king a more permanent feature. It also expands the restrictions that had already been put in place on peasants carrying weapons in public, which we discussed in our previous chronological episode. 
episode, and this was expanded to now include everyone. So from now on, no one was allowed to walk around casually with a sword or crossbow or attend a court or a party or the market whilst armed. Not even the high nobility. So that's a pretty good step. It's uh, taking this law to include everyone. And as we mentioned previously and just now, the Landslag is a law for the whole country, but there are still local laws in place in the various counties, because as we said, at the time Sweden had a much more federal legal system and not a unitary one like today. And the law is of course only applicable in Sweden. This Christopher's Landslag is just part of Sweden's legal system, because as part of the Kalmar Union Agreement, each country had its own laws and legal code. Christopher's Landslag isn't really famous for being good or special in any way, but rather for lasting a long time. It will be the prevailing law code for all of Sweden for nearly 300 years, until a new one is written in 1734. And you want to know something fascinating? That one, the law code from 1734, is the one we still have in place in Sweden today. So there's still restrictions on if I can carry my crossbow around or something like that. <laughs> no, it's not the same one, not the same laws as in 1734, but we haven't actually published a new law code. The 1734 legal code is the foundation of Swedish law today, but it has obviously been revised many, many times, and new laws have been added in and others taken away. I mean, we've removed things like the death penalty and added in things like cybercrime, but it is still founded on the 1734 legal code. Yeah, it'd been a bit impressive if they had cybercrime on the books in 1734. Yeah. It's like, we can't commit any of these crimes yet, but in 300 years' time, it's going to be a big thing. <laughs> This means that, actually, there's only going to be three national law codes ever in Sweden. The King Magnus one to start with, King Christopher updating it a little bit a uh, hundred or so years later, and then uh, a big update in 1734, so that's pretty cool. And perhaps the fact that we're talking about things like legal matters and town privileges and carrying your weapons to the market is a good illustration of what else is actually going on, or rather not going on, during the years when Christopher just took over the throne. Because there weren't really any other dramatic events that went on after the rest of the 1440s ended up being pretty peaceful. And absolutely, especially if you compare it to the previous sort of 15 episodes of the podcast, in the last 20 or 30 years of Swedish history we talked about. There aren't any peasant revolts during his reign, or, or at least in Sweden. He did have to defeat a rebel peasant army down in Denmark at the start of his reign and dismember the leader, but in Sweden it was all nice and peaceful, really. Which I'm sure would have been a great relief for essentially everyone involved. The local nobility in Sweden liked him too. He agreed to let them do most of the de facto ruling and accepted what they put in place. He didn't interfere too much, but he also wasn't too distant. He kept to his promise not to appoint foreigners to positions of power locally, and he spent quite a lot of time in Sweden. At one point, he's here for almost an entire year, from November 1443 to November 1444. In fact, in his book, 
book Kalmar Union and Teed, the era of the Kalmar Union, Lars Erik Larsson goes as far as saying that these were the best years ever for the Kalmar Union, or, or at least when viewed from the point of the Swedes and the Swedish Council. So, life is plodding along. In late 1447, Christopher is on his way to attend a meeting with the Swedish Council in Jönköping. They need to come up with a strategy to make sure that ex-King Eric actually formally accepts the offer to head down to Pomerania and become ruler there, because he hasn't actually done that at this point. So they want to make sure that they get rid of him once and for all. On the way there, Christopher stops to celebrate Christmas in Helsingborg. But there, he falls ill, and by the start of the new year, he is so unwell that he thinks it's best he draws up his last will and testament, which is dated to the 4th of January, 1448. But then he uh, got better and ruled for a golden age of Kalmar Union politics for the next 40 years. Or did he? Uh, No, unfortunately, he wrote this will right in the nick of time, because despite being only 31 years old and seemingly fit and healthy up to this point, King Christopher dies the next day on the 5th of January 1448. Yeah, and just like that... As if this was all a game of snakes and ladders and we've stepped on the square on the board that sends you back, well, Sweden and the entire Kalmar Union is without a king. And the calm and relative stability of the last couple of years is once again broken. Yeah, and uh, who is sitting out in Finland (laughs) thinking, just waiting for something like this to happen? Now things are going to get pretty messy. And I know we said that many times before, but the decades that are to come in the end of the 1400s and the early 1500s are some of the most chaotic in Swedish and Nordic history, at least. And certainly when we get to the end of that period, the you know, the first couple of decades of the 1500s, stuff that really starts to shape modern Sweden. Yeah, I mean, we're in for a wild ride for the next few decades. Partly, what sets this off is that there's now no natural heir to any of the thrones in the Kalmar Union. Christopher and Dorothea hadn't had time to have any children, so there's no immediate natural heir. And we're now so far out on that branch of the family tree, you know, when the Danes go to open up that book that we talked about in the start of the episode, like, there's just a blank page now. I mean, if the Kalmar Union had struggled to stay together so far, this is going to pose an even bigger problem for them. But we're going to have to leave this to cover in the future, because uh, it seems fitting to round off this episode now that my namesake is so sadly lying dead in Helsingborg. And a fun fact, he won't be the last Swedish king to die in Helsingborg either, as the current king's predecessor and grandfather, Gustav VI Adolf, died there back in uh, 1973, which is the reason why we're celebrating the current king's 50th jubilee this year in Sweden. And uh, he was there and died there in Helsingborg because because it was actually one of his favourite places in Sweden. On YouTube, there's a video of the king's death being announced outside the hospital he was in, and then the current king comes out of the door and is given three cheers and a salute of long live the king. Yeah, Helsingborg has uh, a lot of royal connections. My dad grew up in Helsingborg, and he remembers seeing the old king, Gustav VI uh, 
Adolf his uh, royal train carriage uh, in the train station when they were down visiting. The old king and queen were very fond of staying at Sophia Ru Castle or Sophia Ru Palace, which is in Helsingborg. And very cool thing about the old king, he was a really fun and cool, like, amateur archaeologist. That was what he did when he wasn't busy kinging, was yeah. digging up old stuff. Yeah. Very cool. That's what I would do if I was a king. I'd just use all my money and time off to uh, go and dig up, like, Petra or something. Uh, I feel like you have, as we've done this episode with King Christopher, you have gotten this idea of becoming king a bit too firmly kind of ingrained in your brain. You're you're talking way too much about being king. Maybe I would get a similar name to King Christopher because King Christopher is known in modern day Sweden as King Christopher of Bavaria, just like his uncle was King Eric of Pomerania. So I would be King Christopher of Hove or of England when that day comes. Of Sussex. Yeah. They got this, even though they were very much legitimate kings of Sweden and the other Scandinavian kingdoms. And this is a practice we've seen before. Yeah. Back in the 1300s, we had King Albert of Mecklenburg. And obviously all these places, Bavaria, Pomerania, Mecklenburg, Sussex in your case, they're not in Sweden or even in Scandinavia. So it's important to remember that at the time they weren't called that. Christopher, the king we've been talking about in this episode, he would have just been called King Christopher, not King Christopher of Bavaria. In fact, if anything, he's a duke of Bavaria. He's king of Sweden, Denmark and Norway, the Kalmar Union. These of, and then a place that they were from, that was added later in history, largely to vilify these rulers and highlight the fact that they were foreigners and as such unfit to rule Sweden. It's partly a sign of later Swedish nationalism in the study of history and also how these rulers' opponents wanted to denigrate them and in some cases justify their own rule immediately afterwards by sort of alienating them, saying they weren't right for the throne but I am because I'm actually from here. Yeah, and some of the overblown sources we have for, for this period of time is the Karl Chronicle, which was written on request from Karl Knudsen Bunda, and so uh, is very much a KKB propaganda piece of paper. And it's largely used to justify his claims to power. In this chronicle, there's no end to the bad-mouthing and negative descriptions of Christopher. He's described as small and chubby, lecherous, a drunkard, a gambler. The chronicle goes as far as claiming that the harvests were bad during his reign, and that on the day he died, there was a storm over the country. But as soon as the news of his death was declared, the storm clouds just blew away. Yeah, it's almost comical how badly Christopher is portrayed in the chronicle. It's like they just wrote down everything bad they could think of. He was drunk, he was fat, he swore, he somehow even managed to have an impact on the weather. I mean, it's of course absurd. If anything, like we said, his reign looks pretty peaceful when we view it in hindsight. 
But yes, we hope you've enjoyed this episode on the glorious reign of King Chris. Uh, I just want to make sure I can say King Chris as many times as possible in this episode. Oh my god, this has really gone to your head, hasn't it? Uh, Well, it was neat, though, to fit an entire reign of a king into one episode for once. But before we go, we've had an email from Dave, who sent us a bunch of really cool photos from Bishop Hill in Illinois, which was a town built by Swedish emigrants, or more precisely, a group of emigrants who were followers of the Pietist movement and their leader, Erik Jansson, back in the 1840s. Bishop Hill and Erik Jansson is really interesting, as is the whole Pietist movement in Swedish history and the emigration to the US that it resulted in. So I'm sure we'll cover that in much more detail when we get to the mid-1800s and talk more about Swedish emigration to the US in general. Is it not Pietists because they're pious and piety and yeah. they're, they're, they're religious people? I pronounce it Pietist, but that might be a Swedish pronunciation yeah. of it. Yeah, it sounds like it might be Pietist if yeah. it's in American. This is the trouble with only reading things and not listening to them. This is the problem with not doing research for your episode. Well, Dave sent us the research, and um, we're going to share these pictures, or at least some of them, um, around this sort of time that this uh, episode is being released. So uh, either go back a couple of days or wait a couple of days, depending on when you're listening to the episode, and uh, have a look on uh, Facebook and Twitter. And I might even put them on the website website too so uh yeah yeah and we also had a lovely review on facebook that we'd like to share with you it's from sandy who writes Chris and Orsa are hilarious, and I love the depth of research they put into this podcast. I've learned a lot and look forward to learning more. The bloopers at the end of select episodes are my absolute favourite. They crack me up every time. I'm attaching a photo of my listening companion, Sable, in the hopes of more bloopers. And so that was a great review, and yes, um, not deliberate at all, but there's a a new blooper at the end of this episode. So if, uh, unlike Sandy, you don't necessarily listen after the music, sometimes there's some really great or terrible content there for you (laughs) and then sandy attached a great photo of her listening companion like she said sable who to me looks like she might be a poodle of some description maybe a cockapoo or a labradoodle i can't tell from the photo but she's a dog for sure yeah, sounds like a dog, or looks like a dog even. Uh, lots of curly, fluffy hair. <laughs> yeah, so thank you so much, Dave and Sandy and Sable, for the email and the recommendation, and we hope you keep enjoying the podcast. If you want to do like Sandy and Sable did, uh, please leave us a review or a rating on Facebook or whatever platform you listen to us on. That's the second time a dog has been involved in a review as well, with after Diego the dog uh, prompted the special episode. What does that say about our podcast that we're apparently very popular with dogs? Dog, dog friendly. Dog friendly podcast. Well, dogs have incredible hearing, so... I you were going to say dogs have incredible good taste. <laughs> that too. In history podcasts, they have incredibly good taste and good hearing. So that's I take that as a very good review that we're clearly liked by at least two dogs. Yeah. 
But yes, after all those stuff, you can also uh, get in touch on email, just like Dave did, uh, using flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com or message us on Facebook or on Twitter. And you can find all those details on our website or, you know, we say them at the end of every episode, so we don't need to say them now. No, we'll be back in two weeks' time with more mayhem from the 1400s. Hope you will listen to us then. Bye-bye. Hey there. He's foul-mouthed and constantly stirs up trouble. Foul-mothed, as it's written in the script. He has an angry army of moths that fly around, eating the clothes of his enemies. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no, it's meant to say foul-mouthed, but I've accidentally written foul-mothed in the script. But maybe that too, I don't know. (laughs) This is such good timing that there's an outtake in this episode because that's literally what Sandy wrote on Facebook about there being an outtake. So this one is especially for you, not planned at all, but uh, the foul moths are for you. (laughs) Foul moths for you as a funny outtake. Hope you enjoy it. And he did this to try and extort money from this family. This outrages the castle? Uh, The council. The council. This outrages the Swedish council, 